0: Hello memoir readers and writers. I've added some new merchandise to the Let's Talk Memoir store. I've got travel mugs and t-shirts and post-it notes and tote bags and all kinds of goodies for you and your favorite memoir lover. You can find a link to the Let's Talk Memoir store in three places, the show notes at the podcast app where you listen, my Instagram, which is at Ronit Plank in the bio, and that's a great place to get updates on the show anyway. So I hope you'll visit and then follow me and also at RonitPlank.com on the main page and also on the Let's Talk Memoir page. I am having a great time designing some of these items, but if you visit the store and you have an idea for something that you don't see there, please message me on Instagram or you can contact me on my website and I will make it for you. And all throughout January 2024, I am keeping the survey about how you listen to Let's Talk Memoir and what kind of memoir content you'd like open. So you can also find the link for that survey, it's about 10 questions, in the show notes and chime in so I can start designing episodes for you with you in mind. And now on to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today my guest is Jamie Brickhouse, called a natural raconteur by the Washington Post. He is a writer, comedic storyteller, TikTok sensation, podcast host, and public speaker. He's the author of the critically acclaimed Dangerous When Wet, A Memoir of Booze, Sex, and My Mother. Its required reading in Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, an Amazon editor's pick, has been an Amazon best book, and a book chase nonfiction top 10. His essays and articles have been published in the New York Times, International Herald Tribune, Washington Post, The Daily Beast, Salon Interview Out, Huffington Post, POZ, Amtrak's Arrive, Lambda Literary Review, Publishers Weekly, and Shelf Awareness. His recent HuffPost personal essay adapted from his memoir in progress I Favor My Daddy, A Tale of Two Sissies has over 500,000 views and Merriam-Webster featured a sentence from the piece in its word of the day as a perfect usage example of the word effulgence. Brickhouse's daily TikTok hashtag stories and heels videos in which he tells a true story have over 5 million views, nearly a million likes and over 75,000 followers. He is the host of the Podcast, Sober Podcast, part of Sober Network, and is an award winning storyteller who tours two solo shows based on his memoirs, Dangerous When Wet and I Favor My Daddy. Brickhouse has taught memoir, personal essay, creativity, and book marketing at the Columbia Publishing Course, San Miguel's Writers' Conference, Hippocamp, a conference for creative nonfiction, Creative Nonfiction Writers' Conference, the North Carolina Writers' Storytellers' Conference, and Expo and Cape Cod Writers' Conference. Welcome, Jamie!
1: Thank you, Ronit. How are you? Thanks for having
0: me on. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. And my gosh, I feel like I need sort of like music intro to go with that because, wow, you've done so much. I think that's the most thorough bio I've been able to read on my show because you have so many hats that you wear.
1: So many. Yeah, I'm I'm schizophrenic. but
0: I mean, have you always, I have to ask, I know we're going to get into talking about Dangerous When Wet, but have you always been this industrious?
1: No. <laughs> because for a long time I could I just held down a job and drank. <laughs> and all that other stuff went by the wayside.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually that's right. So I guess we better we better dive in here. So can you share a little bit about this memoir, Dangerous One Wet, that we're gonna be talking about today?
1: Absolutely. You know, it it's well when I began writing it, I thought, ah. Am I going to write a a memoir about my
0: alcoholism
1: or a memoir about my Texas tornado of a mother, Mama Jean? (laughs) So I would write a piece about, you know, about the booze and then I'd write a piece about my mother. And then I realized I couldn't write one without talking about the other. So I tell the story of coming of age and becoming an alcoholic through the prism of my relationship with my mother, Mama Jean, and the book is told episodically. Each chapter is almost got like a, stand- a, stand- a standalone story with a lot of darkly comic humor in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you when you say that you learned that you wanted to kind of combine them, that you couldn't tell the story of one without the other, how much of that came from your own sense of story and narrative arc, and how much of that might have come from outside or trusted readers? Slightly,
1: uh, mostly on my own, but uh, because I I decided, I made that decision early on before I even was sure that I had a book. I I started writing this in a nonfiction memoir workshop that Phyllis Raphael taught. She she used to teach at the, uh, she taught at the Columbia Publishing, I mean, Columbia University Creative Writing Program for years. And then when she retired, she started her own uh, private workshop. And that's where the foundation of this book was laid and mm-hmm. so it was in that workshop probably in the first semester that I started writing it and then and realized it in there so I, I so yes from the from the reader feedback and from guidance i got that input but it was a decision i also made pretty much on my own as well
0: mm-hmm. it seems like such an important it seems so important that they're intertwined it seems so mm-hmm. relevant and you've written and spoken about a host of topics that can be really hard for people to approach or to experience or to have loved ones go through alcoholism, suicide prevention, mental health and HIV. And that's just the beginning of it. So I'm curious, what you might think the younger version of you, the one from your 20s, who is in the midst of this kind of hurricane of behavior, what, you know, 20s and 30s, what would that person, that version of you, think about your candor and advocacy that you lean so so strongly into now, and that you've excavated these personal parts of your life in this way.
1: Well, the frank and honest answer is he probably wouldn't have wanted to hear it mm-hmm. <laughs> because he wanted to. I mean, I mean I'm just talking. This is the the reality of uh, of an alcoholic and an addict. He wouldn't have wanted to hear it because he would it, it would have impinged on his drinking. However, that doesn't mean he would have listened, and and once he listened, he it might have planted the seed, and sobriety was a better a better way of life, and mm-hmm. that he could also get what he wanted out of life a lot sooner by being sober.
0: Mm-hmm. And and because you're so your work is so dependent on this journey of sobriety. How is that for you these days as as a sober artist, a sober writer, a sober performer to, to talk about this all the time and, and in terms of your own growth and your ability to stay healthy? How has that been for you? It's
1: been great because whenever I share my story, whether I do it on the printed page or at a microphone or um, on TikTok when I tell a story, and, the, and, and it resonates with one or more people. It helps me to stay sober. And it also is gratifying to know that uh, my particular story has universal appeal and, and can you know, resonate and, and help somebody else.
0: Mhm. And before all this you spent two decades in the publishing industry with major houses and you were head of their publicity and lecture divisions I think and I'm wondering back in the day when you were in this career did you think of yourself as a writer already did you have a hunch you might write a memoir someday? I
1: certainly no, in my early career in publishing I did not think I would write a memoir someday. I had I I wrote in high school and uh, college and originally wanted to be a journalist before I came to New York and then fell into to book publishing and, and into publicity in particular. So I already had, but I did not consider myself a writer because I, I felt like since I wasn't writing every day, and wasn't pursuing that as a career. And as far as writing a book, I thought that uh, writing a book seemed like a lot of work and, and, and that it, <laughs> you would take, think? it would take many years to do that. And yeah. I was, you know, I, I got this from firsthand from some of the writers I was working with and whose books mm. I was promoting. And you know what? I was right. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of work and it does take a long time. So much work, right? It, and, you know, and it wasn't until I got sober and it was actually when I was in, in rehab in Palm Springs and a couple of my friends, they were saying, Oh, you're going to write a book. You know, you're, I can't wait. You know, you're so funny or you, you've got such great stories and you know, you're going to write a book when you get out of here. And I said, Oh no, you know, Oh, come on. All shucks, that kind of thing. But it, it it planted a seed and I said, you know what? I think I might. And I started writing again when, and I hadn't written for years at that point. And so when I came out of rehab, that's when I started writing again.
0: Was it hard to work on material about, your alcoholism, and, and what got you to the position where you were in rehab? Was it hard to deal with that material while you were in recovery?
1: Well, it was it, it, yes and no. I mean, yes, is, is no, because recovery helped me deal with all of that and, and also helped me share honestly about it in meetings and in therapy that I was in. But it was, I had to overcome some hurdles as I was writing this book. And I thought, oh, you know, am I really going to tell this story? Do I really want to reveal that? Do I want to write about that? Mm. And in some cases, the answer, I think the answer might have been no, but rarely. The, mm-hmm. the answer usually ended up being yes, and I would uh, push through and, and write about it. Because I thought if I'm telling this particular story, uh, I mean, meaning the whole the book, the story I'm telling in the book, I have to include these other parts of my life, you know, because I think if you're going to be, if you're writing a, a memoir, you've got to be honest about the things that apply to the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't yeah. mean you have to reveal everything about yourself, of course.
0: Right, right, means, right. You, you still know. get to decide. Yeah. I was hoping you could read the opening to your memoir, that excerpt that we talked about. Sure,
1: I'd be happy to. So yes, this is the the, the prologue of the opening of the book, and I will begin Whoever said you can't get sober for someone else, never met my mother, Mama Jean. When I came to in a Manhattan emergency room after an overdose to the news that she was on her way from Texas, I panicked. She was the last person I wanted to see on that dark September morning, but the person I needed the most. She doesn't need to know about this, I told my brother Jeffrey, who sat in a dark corner of the room call her stop her before she gets on the plane it's too late he said in a monotone she's already in flight (laughs) there's no stopping mama jean at 38 i have been living in new york city for 16 years almost as long as the time i spent growing up in little old flat as a flitter hot and steamy oil refinery oasis cancer capital beaumont texas Beaumont is a southeast Texas port town on the banks of the muddy brown Natchez River with the smaller port towns of Port Arthur and Orange, not far off of, off of I-10, the Golden Triangle, this triumvirate of towns is called. With the corrosive winds of the Gulf Gulf of Mexico a mere 30 miles away, Rusty Troika is a better name. Pardon my dust, but I fled that backwater to New York City where I had carved out a successful career in book publishing with some fancy executive vice president titles alongside my architect boyfriend, Michael Hayes, or Maca Hayes, as he was known in our circle. I am going to get sophisticated if it kills me, I love to say, throwing back a martini, beef eater gin, dry, up with a twist. I was quoting a line from one of the many old Joel Crawford movies that taught me how to be glamorous and sophisticated. And it nearly did kill me. I didn't need Mama Jean in the middle of this mess. I could imagine how she'd greet me. God damn it! (laughs) Her God damn it was said with a pregnant pause after God that left the object of her scorn bracing for the explosion of
0: Damn it!
1: I knew you'd end up like this. I just knew it. I was tired of being in the red with her, the cars, trips to Europe, college, the apartment. I moaned at the thought and ran my hands through my copper red hair, which was fading along with my looks. With an expressive oval face and nearly six feet of skin and bone, I had never been handsome, but musical comedy cute. The sidekick, not the lead. All bow ties and polka dots. Had there been a mirror and I'd had the courage to look in it, that's not what I would have seen. Gin-soaked at 38, my puffy complexion was redder than my hair, which was dissolving to a dull auburn, and my lanky frame didn't want to carry the yeasty dough I had poured on the middle. The lights in my brown eyes were off. Where's Michael? I searched the gloom of the windowless room, lit only by a slash of jittery fluorescent hall light from Micah Hayes. We had been together almost as long as I'd been in New York, and he had never left my side, despite all of my peccadilloes. Did he get me here? He left about an hour ago. Oh, how long have I been on the gurney? What time is it? What day is it? How long until Mama Jean arrives? Then panic again. Oh, God. You've got to tell Michael to hide my... I knew she'd be staying in our bedroom, and I didn't want her rifling through my drawers, which contained something more revealing than porn. I know. It's already taken care of, Geoffrey answered. Big relief. I couldn't hide my drinking from her anymore. Have I ever been able to? But she did not need to know all my secrets. Lying on an emergency room gurney, my primary concern wasn't who or what got me there. Well, I knew what got me there, the overdose of sleeping pills. I'd taken the day before in my own bed. A cliche straight out of Valley of the Dolls. The prescription on the pill bottle read, take as needed. followed directions. All of that I could figure out later. I was worried more about what Mama Jean, my greatest champion and harshest critic, would say. I was still in denial. Jesus, I was barely conscious, but I was about to face the two most important relationships in my life, booze and Mama Jean.
0: Thank you. I knew you were going to read that like that. And it was trying not to interrupt you with my laughter. (laughs) But I really couldn't contain myself at one point because you're just such a consummate performer. You've just been, you just know how to do this, which is part of the reason why you're able to wear so many hats. And I'm curious about, yes, no, absolutely. Are you in New York, by the way?
1: I am in New York. Did you I hear thought, the sirens yes, I in the I'm sorry about no, that. No, not yes. at
0: all. You know why? Also, I noticed because I used to perform. I don't know. I, I never told you that. But I used to perform in New York and LA. And now I live in Seattle, but I'm from New York. And I heard that in the background. I thought, oh, he's in New York. And then I realized I was like, oh, he's going to keep going because he's a performer. He is not going to stop for that siren. I was like, that's right. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> right. I would do the same. So then when you wrote this book and you like had the first draft, can you remember or talk a little bit about what your revisions were like and, and how much time went between finishing the first draft and maybe the end product or what areas, if any, gave you any particular issues that you had to really untangle?
1: Well, I, I would say I started writing this book in that workshop in 2010 and then I sold it on proposal with my agent and agent sold it on proposal in 20. 20- Twelve. So at that point, I had maybe half of the book written, and we sold it with, you know, three or five chapters in the proposal, and then I and then I continued writing it after I was under contract, and then churned it in, uh, maybe the first draft, 2013. Mm-hmm. But I remember as I was at this point, sending in the first section to my editor at my publisher, and he said, "This is great." He said, "But it's too long," and
0: mm-hmm. I knew that
1: when I sent it to him. But I was at this point, I was like, I didn't. I was like. I was too afraid to 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 start cutting stuff myself without mm. sending. I was like, oh, but I wanted to, I wanted you to see it all, you know. Before he said no, like he said he said these three stories are all good, but they all really tell the same thing. So oh. one of the, two of them should go. And he said, but I'm not going to tell you which ones. You know, mm. you make that that's your choice. So there, uh, you know, when you write a memoir, you have the burden of too much information, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to decide. It's just like moving. You know, say if you're moving from a large house to an apartment and everything is just not going to fit in the apartment and you're Mm going to have to make some decisions and some of the stuff may be great, but it just doesn't work in the new, in the new apartment. And so there was that, there was the cutting. And then I had to go What kind of what you were saying earlier about in this interview about, was it hard for me to write about certain things? And there were two, one was my suicide attempt, you know, which we just, it, which opens the book really I mean it's not the actual suicide attempt but which I do tell later in the book but that the book opens that I just read right after I've come out of that and and I knew of course that I was always going that was always going to be the book it had to be there was mm-hmm. no question but it was the one that I kept dancing around and having and, and avoiding really writing and getting into and and I remember in the writing workshop with Phyllis before I, we got to the before I sold it to the publisher and she said you know you're kind of glossing over this and you really you've got to sit down and and face this and tackle mm-hmm. it so and I did and that was that was one and then I debated on about whether or not to reveal that I'm HIV positive because at that mm-hmm. point I was in the closet about it and only my uh, then partner now husband Micah Hayes knew and a handful of friends and and I thought you know I could write this book and tell the story it doesn't have to be in there mm-hmm. and that's still true I think but it's Imp- it, but I decided it is important to the story. And also, what's the big deal? <laughs> I had my own shame about it because I, you know, I came of age when AIDS was a raging forest fire and safe sex was mm-hmm. protocol. And and I feel like I got it. It was because of my reckless drinking and drugging. But you know what? It doesn't matter how you get it, you know, or what's, you know, it's, it's a disease that anyone, anyone can get. And I had shame about it. And I never did tell my mother. I, I ended up telling my father. And once I told him, and he didn't care, he just cared that I was OK, that liberated me. And then I was mm. like, "Oh, there's no question. This is going to be in the book. So.
0: Oh, wow. You know, speaking about your father, you wrote a piece for the HuffPost about him. and It's entitled, I suspect my father died with a big secret. I regret never asking him for the truth. Do you think you could share a bit about this essay and what the response was from loved ones and friends when they read it? Yeah,
1: it, it's kind of a uh, a good preview of what the my next and here comes some more sirens. So get ready. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry.
0: I, does this happen when you're doing your podcast too?
1: Well, unfortunately, where I live, it happens just all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, you, you learn. I to remember. Live
0: with it. I know. I know about it, and it's just a, like another day. It's not even notable. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The the this essay that I wrote for Huffington Post is it's a good calling card for my. Memoir that I'm working on. I favor my daddy, A Tale of Two Sissies, and you know it's about. And I think a lot of people can relate to it because it's about all those unasked questions that we ask that we don't ask our parents or our loved one, and then and then you know, and then you don't do it, and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. And and he and I, I'm probably more like him than I'm like my mother, Mama Jean. I think I got my drinking the drinking gene, if it is a gene or or an inherited trait. I think it, it. It came from him because he was and i do believe he was an alcoholic he just didn't have the dire consequences that i did and i also think he was gay you know Mm -hmm. and i think uh, and i and it was one of those things where it, it kind of i started thinking that when i was in high school but was in denial about it and then you know then over the years come up in my mind and then after my mother, Mama Jean died, whom and he adored her, and they had they had a volatile relationship, but they also had a great relationship as mm-hmm. well and a great life mm-hmm. together. And so in the last five years, or after he died, after she died, rather, I thought you know it would have more room for us to become closer and have deeper conversations. And in fact, Dangerous When Wet, when he after he read it, which I'm so glad he did because he died before the book came out, and I mm-hmm. almost didn't let him read it just because. I was afraid of how he'd react to some of the stuff that was in there, and I'm so glad he did, and he loved it, and it opened mm. up some more conversations with us. But I did not have the guts to ask him if he was gay, and I think it, it could have made us closer, and and uh, explained a lot of the uh, you know the problems that he and my that my, my mother and he had over the years. And I'm just, you know, sorry that that we couldn't have that conversation. I don't know if you saw the movie Beginners, with I... Christopher Plummer and I think it's Ewan McGregor plays the son. And it's the and Christopher Plummer plays the 70 year old who comes out in a huge way after. Oh, the wife I didn't died. see it. And when I saw it, and my mother had been dead about three years, and I saw it with with Michael, my husband, and he just turned to me and he said, Earl my father <laughs> I, yeah. said, I said that's my idea and I thought oh wouldn't that be wonderful if he came out but I always kind of knew that was a pie in the sky yeah uh, fantasy and but the then- oh, and the reaction you asked about the reaction to friends and family and you know a funny a lot of people from my childhood they were like oh yeah I always kind of thought your father was gay ah. just that they that they under you know that they had some kind of understanding that was some people's reaction and yeah. but then some friends were like, again, talking about sharing your story and, ha- and having others re- not realize how the, uh, it may help others or they may resonate with it. Some others was, were said, you know, oh, my God, I think my father was gay, too. And never, you know, and never came out. And I had one of my former bosses in publishing. We actually used to joke about it, that uh, that our fathers were gay. And then we recently had a conversation of, about that and about, you know, basically we said, yeah, I think they were both gay and alcoholic.
0: Oh wow, that's heavy stuff.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, it's heavy to know that. Well, I don't know. We don't know how he might have felt about not about being closeted, or you know what he would have liked to have done or not. But right, right. You you gave him this this sort of you lit the stage for him here, and almost provided room for that exploration. You, like your generosity in in wondering about it is sort of a gift.
1: Oh well, thank you.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about your experience as a Moth Story Slam winner, because I think you've won a lot. And I know people talk about the Moth. People dream about going and and participating. Some people never want to do it because they're too afraid. And Mm -hmm. it's just sort of in the back of your mind as a creative or as a writer. And I'm curious what it was like for you, what it's like to prepare material for that. And is it at all similar to writing memoir or maybe it's really different? And, you know, what is it like to perform your stories?
1: Well, it is similar to writing memoir because you're telling two personal, you know, you're telling true personal stories in, in which you're the main protagonist in the story. And so I started doing, I discovered personal narrative storytelling through The Moth, and I discovered it like maybe right before my book came out, a year or so before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I started telling, and I was like, oh great, I've got, you know, I've already got ready-made stories because mm-hmm. I've got a, a manuscript. And, which was somewhat true, and I, I told stories, I told a lot of stories adapted from the book, but I found out early on that some of it was too, they were too monologuey and too Mm. scripted. And I kind of actually had, and I used to, to, but then some of them worked. So I switched, I used to write them and I used to write the whole thing. And now after, you know, I've gotten better at, at performing and telling stories and being looser with them. Now, when I'm telling a, a, a new story, I just start telling it. To myself and rehearsing it and, and, and recording it, and then I may and then I may write it after the fact.
0: Ah, wow. so is it a memorization? Would you say, or is it more like a bullet point type of thing that you know you need to cover while you're up there?
1: It's more a bullet point kind of thing because if you do that, what I found early on with memorization is it sounded too scripted. Mm-hmm. And it was to and for storytelling. You yes, you want it. It has to be somewhat scripted, and it has to be you. It, you have to have have a, a tight construction and structure to the story, and how you tell it, and in the the order of the way you tell things, and you know, an element of surprise, et cetera, and all that kind of thing. But it also it needs to come off more naturally.
0: Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm.
1: my stuff sounded early on sounded scripted because it was.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me too because I think that audiences really know they can tell when Mm -hmm. something is fresh and you're searching for the terms and you're really in the moment and kind of flying by the seat of your pants just a smidge and when it's memorized
1: yeah 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 and you know and i'm doing a i'm doing a new show here in new york it's part of the gotham storytelling festival and it's called pearl necklace a gay sexcapade and (laughs) and it's stories that i've been you know telling about sex and love life and, and and things related to that stories that I've told before and now I'm putting together in one show and there's there's gonna be it's a sh- but it's a show so you have to mm-hmm. have a script and it's gonna there's gonna be a you know minimal tech some sound cues and that kind of thing so I have to have a script for the tech person but I also know that I can be a little loose with it you know mm-hmm. like I don't I don't have to stick to the precise words that are in, that are in the script as long as I'm telling the story well mm-hmm. and also. Within the time frame that I have to tell the sh- to do the show.
0: Do you get nervous these days when you perform?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, more or less. I suspect I will be very nervous for this show because it'll be the first time I'm doing it. And maybe if it's if it's if it's if I'm performing where there where it's a contest like the the Moth Story Slam or, or some other kind of Story Slam that I where the stakes are a little bit higher where it's a competition then I I'm probably more nervous. And, and I think that's good. I think it's actually a good sign when you're nervous because then you, you care.
0: Uh, yes, that's, exa- and- <laughs> that's exactly what an old acting teacher used to say mm-hmm. to us. I remember that back in New York. She'd say, you're nervous because you care.
1: And I have a mantra before I perform, which is confident, not cocky, nervous, not terrified. <laughs> and stage fright, I'm glad you're here, but you're going to sit on the back row and not come on the stage with me.
0: Oh, yeah, I just I think about it all the time because I used to perform and I don't anymore. And I I'm kind of happy I don't because it, it would start to get really nerve wracking for me. And so I'm, I'm amazed and, you know, in awe of people who can do it all the time. So okay, pivoting yet again, when you teach memoir, mm-hmm. is there an area you especially like to focus on with writers? And, and is there anything that comes up again and again, across workshops or across different writers or ages that you see a lot in the writing?
1: When I'm teaching writing workshops, you know, not about, not about the marketing or the business side of publishing, because I do a lot of those. I teach a lot of those at these workshops. Often for the memoir workshops, I'm focused on, on channeling memories. And there's an exercise. It's really a, a writing prompt that teacher I told you about Phyllis gave to me called I Remember. And it comes from, there's this cult classic book called I Remember by Joe Brainerd. And he was a a visual artist, but he wrote this wonderful book, and I think he had at least another one, which it served as a memoir. And he wrote down a string of memories. Um, so, what you do in the exercise is you, as you write stream of conscious. You know, I remember the first day we got cable TV, and I Dream of Jeannie popped on the screen. I remember the white shag carpeting in my parents' bedroom and losing my brace, uh, my uh, retainer. Blah blah blah, and mm-hmm. so you just write this string of, of memories in there. And anyway, and so Joe Brainerd did this and then turned it into an art and and, and wrote and, and turned it into a whole book, kind of a memoir of these beautiful I remembers. And and it's a great writing prompt. But I turned it into a whole workshop in that you first you do the prompt and then you get you get into the flow of it and you're going to be surprised what comes out. And then second, then you can then you channel then you do I don't remember because what you don't remember is sometimes as telling as, and as important as what you do remember. Mm-hmm. And then you can do focused I remembers. Like, I remember, you know, if you're... If you're in fact, I, I had this when I was writing Dangerous and Wet. I was having a problem writing this chapter about my former boss and friend, Liz, who had died. And uh, Phyllis said, well, why don't you do the I remembers around her? Because that work that has served you well, that exercise. And so I just wrote a series of I remembers around Liz, And then it, then I had material, you know, Mm. and I thought, oh, "Oh, okay. And now I know where to begin. And now now I know where, how to tell the story. And now I see the pattern of the memories I have Mm. about her. Mm -hmm. And so people are always amazed because a lot of times people will say, oh, I can't write a, you know, I can't write a memoir because my memory is terrible. And it's like, you don't have to have a good memory to write a memoir. (laughs) And what you're going to find out is that when you start writing it, when you start really thinking about it, is that the memories that are important, you you have. And this exercise, people are always surprised at what comes out and what they remember. And they always walk away from the workshops with at least one, usually more, prose that they can use.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that point too. And first of all, the exercise sounds great and very effective, but also that idea that we don't have to remember everything and that what we do remember, what is sticking to us that we can't really dislodge often is telling us what matters mm-hmm. and what we want to excavate. And it's that's a great place to start.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great excavation. That's a good that's a good verb. Um,
0: yeah. So I know that I'm keeping you a little bit long, but I don't feel like I can let you go unless we just spend a little bit of time talking about the business of publishing. You have such a valuable perspective. You have so many years in it and you know people and you've been there and you've done it and I just... There are so many writers who are at the beginning of launching their books or dream of having a manuscript, and I think publishing seems really mysterious, very unapproachable, and maybe in some ways it is, but I I would Mm -hmm. love you to share what you think writers who have just completed their first books need to keep in mind about agents and publishing houses and having a writing career.
1: Well, it is tough, Mm -hmm. and it seems to get tougher every year, and... You have to keep in mind that first of all, it is a business and it's not personal. <laughs> yes, you want it, you want an editor or an agent to fall in love with your work, and it, and it often does take that for your your work to sell. But it's also a business that you know they have to look at. You know, is it is it worth me? Is it worth this company investing money in this book and this author? Because every book is a risk. It's just like every movie or any other piece of art. Because you just you don't know how the public is re- going to react. Basically, and bottom line, is it going to sell? So you just you you have to remember all of that going in. That
0: that sort of reminds me, like, not to take it too personally. I mean, yeah, exactly. You can and you should get better as a writer, but it it doesn't mean your book isn't well written,
1: right? But then when going after, you really you know if you want to be published by a mainstream publishing house, you need an agent. That's your next step, and in finding an agent, you look at other books that are. And other authors who are similar to to the book you've written, or to the or authors who write the, the kinds of books that, that you want to write or have written, and find out who their agents are, and and then you can find those agents through a uh, literary marketplace, uh, which you can access online. And there are there are lots of resources online as far as how to find the agents and how to find out if they take submissions and how they you know, and how they take them. So that would be your, your next step. And then, of course, self publishing in my day, that was basically vanity publishing and, and not looked well upon. But these days, more and more people are having success in self publishing, and there are a lot of uh, avenues that way. And there's kind of hybrid publishing that's also becoming more legit and mm-hmm. uh, respected, where there's you know, kind of a, you know, where you're not going to get an, an, an advance, but you're going to get a profit share with, mm-hmm. with the publisher. Um, so just be open to a lot of opportunities. Be patient because that's the other thing. Is a lot of you know you're ready to go. You want this book to. You're finished with it. You want it to come <laughs> out next year. You know or, or next month. Well, you know that's probably not going to happen. And it can it's going to take a while. Once you go after the agents, it may take a while for you to hear back from. Them. And you have to be patient. Anyone who's submitted their you know work for, you know freelance work to uh, a magazine or or uh, our other paper you know. You know that that can take a while for the turnaround time. So when it's a book, it's even it can be an even slower process.
0: Yeah, it's a slow process. <laughs> I would say that everything <laughs> about it is a slow process, right? Yes. I mean, there's like nothing fast no. except that when your publishing day, your launch day comes and it's out in the world, and then you're like, "Wow, that's it! It's out." So, are there memoirs that, that have especially informed your work that you'd love to recommend? I
1: will tell you some of my favorites, Mary Carr's The Liar's Club. And, you know, and of course, uh, most people, many people, anyone who knows about memoirs known about that. And it's a a classic and for a reason, because it's very good. But for me, it was the, I read it, Mary Carr, it takes place where I'm from in Mm -hmm. Southeast Texas. And I read it when it was, when it, when it was out, when it first came out and I loved it. But also it was the first memoir, the first literary memoir I had read up to that point. I don't think, I think I'd only read novels in, in nonfiction history, that sort of thing, or help, self-help books, but it was the first literary memoir. And it was also the book that's credited with, with really jump-starting the literary memoir craze. Well,
0: everyone on this show, I would have to say that of all the, the episodes I've had, the guests who recommend memoirs, The Liars Club is the number one mentioned and recommended memoir
1: yeah. yeah, and Cherry and Lit, by the way, her mm-hmm. other other memoirs are wonderful. Before Night Falls um, by Reynaldo Arenas. He was Cuban gay, and it's, it's his memoir of, of being gay in, in Cuba and getting out and coming to New York and then living through the, living and dying through the AIDS epidemic. And it's a beautiful book. Night, of The Night of the Gun, David Carr. He was a writer for uh, the New York Times, and it's his book about uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. harrowing book but it's a great book about addiction and recovery and then I have some books on memoir writing which I love which is Vivian Gornack's The Situation and the Story Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of what I when I teach memoir I pull stuff from that book and it's and Mary Carr The Art of Memoir hers is a great book on memoir writing and Jessica Handler's book Braving the Fire a Guide to Writing About Grief and Loss and even though that seems kind of specific, it's about writing about grief and loss. All memoir is about grief and loss, even if it's not about a death. You know, mm-hmm. it's about a time or a per, or a side of yourself that is no longer is no longer here. So,
0: mm, thank you. I appreciate that. Is there any last bit of advice you'd like to share with writers who are working on their memoirs?
1: Don't worry about what others think, especially your family and friends. Write as if they're all dead. as if they'll never, ever see it, so that you can write what you need to write. And then once you've got it on the page, then you can go back and decide, okay, do I really need to tell that story about her? Do I need to name her? Do I need to, et cetera. And then you Mm -hmm. can edit. And then only after you have a final draft or close to a final draft, do you share with those you have written about what you've written about them, if you feel like you need to share it with them before it gets published.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And lastly, Jamie, where can people find you?
1: They can find me on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. I tell a true story in high heels every day. <laughs> and <laughs> on TikTok, it's Jamie, J-A-M-I-E underscore Brickhouse. And then uh, Instagram and Facebook, it's in uh, YouTube. It's at Jamie Brickhouse and my website, jamiebrickhouse.com. You can always see what's going on with me there.
0: Great. I will put that in the show notes, all those in the show notes, as well as those uh, memoir and book recommendations. And I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today and offering your experience and your insight. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you and with even with the sirens in the
0: background. So. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest – please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show.